Welcome to the first ever podcast brought to you by the Scottish Documentary Institute. My name is Duncan. I've uh, recently joined the team here as a creative intern, doing uh, all sorts of things. Uh, I'm also a filmmaker myself, having recently graduated from Edinburgh College of Art. Uh, the idea behind this podcast is to bring you some of our masterclasses and resources and give them to you for free in an easily accessible and downloadable form. Our masterclasses have been running here at the Art College for a number of years. And we've been putting some of the videos online, um, however, watching clips isn't always the easiest or most convenient way to enjoy these classes. Um, I'm going to be looking through the entire back catalogue and re-editing them and putting them online for you to download or listen to as you wish. The initial aim uh, is to post one episode every Friday for the next ten weeks or so. First up in the new year, we've got a rare and unique podcast that features well-established documentary filmmakers Alan Berliner and Viktor Kozakovsky in conversation. This event took place as part of the 2013 Edinburgh International Film Festival at the Traverse Theatre. Journalist Ian Hayden-Smith hosted the event along with her own Noe Mandel, uh, director of the Scottish Documentary Institute. We're about to join the discussion now as Ian asks Alan about the element of chance in documentary filmmaking. Um, I actually wanted to start with a credit from one of your films, Alan, your, your first um, feature documentary, The Family Album, uh, from 1986. In the credits, you thank Serendipity. And I'm just curious with both of you about the role that chance plays within your films. Well, uh, it is true. I, I've had to answer that question a different way in the past, as if Serendipity was a person or a store. <laughs> but no, it is the, uh, the god of Serendipity. Um, in all its, uh, his or her, its uh, magnificence. And uh, so much of the family album was found. You know, both, it, all the images are anonymous. 70% of the soundtrack I bought at flea markets or garage sales or just happened upon. So I was just learning in a way as a filmmaker the role of chance, the, the blessings of um, happenstance and, and f the joy of finding things randomly that would end up somehow finding their almost um, well, synchronistic and somehow perfect place in my film. And I, that, that in a way became a kind of um, something that I, I learned to both appreciate um, and actually look for. You know, uh, actually uh, all of my films, I think this is true with Victor too, uh, you know, you can frame a, frame a shot, but uh, you can't make a bird fly across or an airplane go across, or it M started M to crash in I was waiting for the microphone to... <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. coming, it's coming. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's particular moment. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think you have to be open to uh, chance, to accident, also to mistake. You know, you can make a mistake and that can turn out to be a blessing too. You know, an obstacle can become an opportunity. You know, you can't put the camera where you want to because the ground is sinking. So you have to put it over here and the next thing you know, you know, the sun is in a different place, the light is in a different place and something even more magical happens. So uh, serendipity is a, one of the gods of cinema, let's just say. I simply cannot make it better than him. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, both of you are... Hold on. So 
let, let, I, I'll answer every question that he asks. And if you can do better, then do so. But if not, just relax. But like a football game, halfway through we'll, yeah. we'll change sides and then we begin with you. And see well, you so the light will be in his eyes. <laughs> we can get you some vodka and you just, you know, all right, relax. Right. Yeah. But you've got some stuff to say about Serpidity. No, mean, no, no, oh, no. Oh, you've got so many stories. After him, no. After him. <laughs> Let's say it like this. If you go out from this room and you turn left, so you probably will meet woman of your life. If you turn right, you probably will not meet her or will meet another one, which could destroy all your life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so same as documentary, it's like this. If, if it's rain, then I think, okay. If it's sunny, then I think, okay, I do it different way. I, once I was, uh, German producer said, oh, you need first ID, first assistant director. And he made a list like to what we do tomorrow. Tomorrow, uh, uh, seven o'clock, camera position there. Seven thirty, camera position number two from there. I I didn't understand what he is doing. All my team was scared. What what the hell is this? <laughs> we know Victor. He never do anything like camera position. I said, how do you write it? If tomorrow is sunny, then I simply put camera opposite uh, from opposite direction. If tomorrow is rainy. So I probably will film completely different things. I kind of rather to film as what life gave me. Mistakes are great stuff. I was just going to say that uh, you know filmmaking is not paint by numbers, you know, and uh, I realize that film schools uh, all over the world actually there's a big emphasis on writing treatments. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? I'm going to go here and shoot this. I'm going to go and talk to her, and she's going to tell me this. I'm going to go and talk to him, and he's going to tell me this, and this is how I'm going to put my film together, and, you know, voila, there it is. Um, you know, I understand the role of that pedagogically, but in real life, that's not what filmmaking is. In real life, as far as I'm concerned, the best films that I've ever made, and the best films that, that I, to the extent that I've uh, witnessed or observed or been party to how they're made, someone says, I'm going to begin here, I'm going to set something in motion, and, you know, it's a journey. And the best films are those in which someone thinks, well, they start here and they think they're going to end here. But in the end, they end up over there. And that journey in which they unfold, they learn more about their subject. They understand their subject in a completely different way. And the film shows the process of that insight, you know, through and through. But don't you think luck is something that you practice, or you need to somehow? No, we go have to special agreement with luck. No, we have contract. You've got a special <laughs> contract yeah, with, with luck. luck. <laughs> the rest of us human beings, yeah. <laughs> more, more we need to practice. Is, is, is luck not something that you have to learn to recognize? I remember hearing Werner exactly. Herzog years ago um, talking about Lost in La Mancha, the documentary about the making of Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote. And he said, yeah, this, this would always be a much better film than Gilliam is capable of because the man has hurricanes, uncontrollable winds, the lead actor puts his back out, there are Air Force planes flying overhead, and he sees all these things as obstructions. He said, if I were making it, these things would be in my film. Yeah. And it's as though he just felt that Terry Gilliam is not, he's someone who just doesn't understand luck. Would you agree, or do you, th do you think you have to 
this is actually it's what acknowledging is, it and finding it. This is it. what filmmaker is. Filmmaker, if you put it in a few words, filmmaker is person who can notice all those signs. We always have it. People just don't see them. But what my, I don't know, his privilege as well, whatever. My privilege is always that I can see them. I, somebody talking to me, somebody gave this, this nod that, uh-uh, this is here, it's here. I just need to see this. It's, you know, sometimes I'm talking with Alan. There are a few guys in the world, like, I love I love them personally, like, uh, you know, Sakura, Fontrier, Werner Herzog, Alan. I love them. I like to talk with them in, pra in, in life, and I like to talk with them when I don't see them. Sometimes I talk with Alan. Uh, he doesn't know about this, but uh, sometimes I, I guess we have... Imagine two mafia godfathers met and they decided, okay, we have New York, you have narcotics, I have prostitution. Do not cross, please. So, sometimes I'm talking to him, and sometimes we argue, actually, in my brain. Sometimes we... And until yesterday, uh, I was seeing, uh, you know, my, my last film, Antipodos, raised a lot of questions, like, oh, Victor, you are a good filmmaker. Why you don't help this world? Why you not make film about poverty, about corruption in Russia? Why you don't make film about, uh, I don't know, something like, and um, so it, it, it part of those people who mm -hmm. say, oh, it's a great film, la, 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 but also someone, and it was huge discussion in Russia. Why Kasakovsky start filming butterflies? Why, why he forgot to be filmmaker and and record Russian life in present and to help him to to change something, something against Putin? Why don't you film? And I was thinking maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe maybe this is. And I was kind of I was talking what I'm doing about water in in Scotland. Maybe maybe people will say Kosakovsky completely not now. And, mm -hmm. and I was talking to Alan. I said, Alan, what he will say about this? Until last moment, when I, uh, yesterday, I was in a cave, how do you call it? Fingold's cave. Yeah, I came there, and in the way that it was long trip in the boat, and in my mind, I just got strange SMS from one of my friends, filmmaker who say, what were you doing in Scotland? You have to film in Russia. And I was full of nerves. And uh, maybe he's right. Maybe all these people are right. Maybe I am an idiot. Then I came to this cave, and I simply realized that, no, I'm right. Because this cave exists thousand years. All our problem, I will die. All my problem will die. Putin will die. Uh, corruption will disappear, but this cave will still there. And there are something more than we understand. There is something more than we we can explain. There is m there is something behind everything we can uh, fight about. There is something more about our proud money, about our career, about our. There is something more we simply don't know. That's why landscape for me is always. I'm just crying when I see something. Uh, when, for example, your your landscape, people, it just I what I what I don't understand, <coughs> and you tell me now, what I don't understand, why don't you have any epic film? Because this is most beautiful landscape in the world. Have you not watched Braveheart? <laughs> <laughs> 
Hollywood. Yeah, don't worry, if you haven't seen it, you haven't missed anything. <laughs> no, what I'm saying, this is, uh, I was traveling around the world many, a few times around the world, and I was everywhere. But this landscape is every corner. I was every corner ready to film. This is absolutely unbelievable country. Why you don't make it? Why are you filming in new offices? Why are you filming with... <laughs> there, there, there is, a, there's true, the, the filmmaker is like Bill Douglas, who I, I, I think has sort of represented a, a particular kind of life. I don't think that, and Lynn Ramsey, in a way, the first feature film, Ratcatcher, I think captures a kind of Scotland that's not necessarily epic landscapes, but, but I think there, there's an incredible poetry. No, guys, I, I, I will make film about Scotland. <laughs> I, I promise now, after my trip here, I promise you will have, a, I will have a movie here. My film looks like very much staged and very much uh, made like in script before and everything like almost fiction. Nothing in fiction, everything doc and everything accidental. Everything accidental. And something that happens, you don't set out with the answer, you set out with an inquiry. I'm just curious because I feel that I go and see a lot of films and I just feel that the person making the film already knew exactly what it was they wanted to say right at the beginning, so what's the point? Because you get that straight away. It's not an exploration. Not at all. If I know what I want to say, I simply will not make film. It's just stupid to do film if you know what you want to say. It's just stupid. Stupid to write something if you know, then you're just trying to convince yourself. Uh, for me, if film not changed me radically during this process, as you say, for me, what I get in pleasure only what, uh, let's say like this, when my camera is running, I'm getting real pleasure, almost orgasm, because I know what I see now, no one see before, no one. No one in the world see what I see now. And magic is I know how to move it. I know, I know how to frame it and know how to move camera. And it's becoming a double surprise, like that's what's happening now, no one see before. In the way I compose it, in the way I move it, becoming, becoming alive. So, it was alive, without me, and now I, I make it something technical, technical. But after this, in a way, if I, if I move camera correct and frame it correct, it's again becoming alive, like someone not belongs to me anymore, can live in the screen forever. It's kind of, it's absolutely magic. It's, I'm just, it, this is most, for me, most happiest moment in my life. When I frame, it's a, nothing compared. Maybe sometimes beautiful lady come to my life, but then, <laughs> but generally nothing to compare. Well, actually, let me, um, Victor gave an example or, or spoke uh, about shooting. Let me say, let me talk about it in the editing room, because the gods of serendipity, the gods of chance, this thing we're calling luck, which I'm not sure is the right word, but there's a lot of hard work involved in this too. <laughs> but, um, you know, to me, I get big thrill and um, deep satisfaction out of making discoveries from my material, you know, understanding how, you know, something, a sound can become a metaphor in a way that I hadn't appreciated, or a series of shots can exist in a montage. And, and, and go to a deeper place than together than the shots would individually, if you thought of them as unique and discrete shots. And those sorts of discoveries and that process is something that I try things, I think they're going to work. Usually they don't work, but I learn from the process of trying. And sometimes, you know, you get lucky, and sometimes 
Victor talked about going with the flow. Sometimes one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. I would just say for, the film, for filmmakers in the room, I'm a big advocate of what I'll call, and I'll just digress for a second. If I were to write a book about filmmaking, I would say, this book is a bad idea. But meaning the title of my book would be Bad Idea. Because I'm a big believer in bad ideas. Because everyone is so concerned with getting it right. Everyone is so concerned with thinking you know what's going to happen, thinking that this is the way to do it. You know, there are no formulas for this stuff. There's only, a, you know, there's only your passion, your energy, and your belief in yourself in a certain way. It's in a, in a, way, you're, in a way, he's tricking you. In a way, because, you know, if you, ha if you come to his apartment, you will see his extraordinary brain. He's just absolutely unusual person, because his apartment and his office is something you never see ever before, you know, it's just, so his brain is like, if my brain is primary school, his brain is academy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you just can see physically. That is such a lie. <laughs> no sound. <laughs> no, you can physically see, like, uh, the amount of things he has in his uh, office and the way they organize. It's just unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. So everything you say, it's based on the huge knowledge, and on, on the huge, even you, he's playing like kids now, saying, oh, I'm just learning. In fact, no, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't argue me. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so graduate school and kindergarten have a lot in common. If I'll even accept that, just for the purpose of of conversation. But I just want to say about bad ideas, all right? I can't tell you how many times um, students have come to me, filmmakers have come to me say, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck with my film. I'm blocked. I don't know what to do. And I say, try something. Have a bad idea. Stop thinking that you have to have the right idea, the good idea. I can tell you, no one gets it right the first time. There's no such thing. You know, if you have a bad idea, it's like throwing something against the wall. If it doesn't stick, if it doesn't work, guess what? You've just learned a lot. You not only know why it doesn't work, because you do have to force yourself to articulate that, but then you're also able to redirect your process, your mind, your approach, to say, okay, I know that doesn't work, so I need to go in this direction, or three, you know, 180 degrees opposite, what have you. And that's how you learn. The, the genealogy of any quote-unquote good idea is always a trail of bad ones. So there should be this emphasis on not being afraid to fail, not being so concerned with getting it right the first time. Just have bad ideas, because that's, that's actually how you cultivate luck, if you want to use that word. You introduced it in the conversation, is that you learn to trust yourself, you know? And you have a, learn how to have a dialogue with yourself, whether it's shooting or editing, conceptualizing, whatever it is. You know, you learn how to have a dialogue with yourself that one thing, even if it's a bad idea, you learn from it and it allows you to go to the next place on, in this process. And the more you learn how to talk to yourself, actually more importantly, the more you learn how to listen to yourself as a filmmaker, and this is true for painters and writers and musicians, it's all being human really, but the more you learn how to listen to yourself, you trust the process, and then you don't even think about it as luck anymore. Okay, because what we call luck is just being opportunistic with whatever happens and weaving that into who you are and what you're doing when it comes down to it. In, in Spain they say he has no grandmother because 
As fast, uh, uh, just I, one no, minute ago I said he's genius, now he starts teaching you how to leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going we're gonna to leave luck alone now. Okay. That's the last time it's mentioned. Um, as long as it doesn't leave us alone, that's so fine. Yeah. Let's uh, stay with the bad idea for a moment though. Isn't it also a case that a bad idea is, is, is not permanently that? It's a, ba a bad idea at that moment in time, and if you do amass the experience, then there'll become another moment when you're working on another project where something that seemed wrong at that moment in time suddenly is the right thing to do. And it's only through gaining the experience of working lots of different ways that you can actually sort of open your mind more to working in the future in different directions. You're asking me? Yes. I disagree with that a little bit. Okay. The only difference between, I, I think experience is a part of it, okay? but. I suppose that the more experience I have doing what I'm doing, I'm accruing what we'll call a sense of craft, let's just say. But in the end, what's the most important, and more, in my opinion, what's more important than anything is confidence and belief in oneself as a, both a decision maker, as a creative being, and as someone who trusts the process. Because what, what's not taught, taught enough in schools generally is that it's okay to get lost. Remember, a path is a path, even in a fog. And if you trust that when you begin your film, you're still, wherever you are, even if you're like blocked or don't know what to do, whatever, you're still on the path, you still have to persist. So what I, what I take away cumulatively from my films is a trust in the process and a belief in myself. And I will say, like in life, um, insecurity breeds itself. Confidence also is self-fulfilling, you know? And so doing, yes. Experience, yes. Builds something, for sure. But um, each film that I make, and in, uh, the journey of each film that I make has trap doors and, and you know, all sorts of unpredictable elements that I'm, I want to be unprepared for. In fact, I would say that every film I make, I want to be the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. And in a way, I want to be completely unprepared for it. Because that's how you grow as a filmmaker, as a person. As a, that's how you grow. And so it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be challenging, whatever it is. And you know, I, 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 yes, craft and experience is part of it. But it's also just confidence to take it where it goes and also to allow, to let go of it and allow it, on whatever level, to tell you it's like listening to your to the film. I talk about listening to oneself. In the end, the film, and I really believe it sounds mystical and all, but in the end, I always say that every film starts out with a faint heartbeat and ends with a strong personality. And at some point along the way, you have to surrender and let the film tell you what it needs, what it wants. And at a certain point, I don't even work for myself anymore. I work for the film. You know, I was I was film student, right? And I filmed in 35 millimeter. So I had no enough material. I only had like small pieces, like one minute, two minutes, like 30, 15 seconds. And one of my, my first shooting day was like, I only had 20, like 20 seconds material. And I didn't, it was a birthday of old guy, 94 years old birthday. And I only can film one shot actually, 20 seconds. And I didn't know how to, when, when to start, when, when to film. And 
and actually he was 94 and in another room was his birthday party like all his students his family were celebrating and he was in bad conditions that day he was sitting alone like this in another room and I, di I even didn't feel comfortable to to stay close to him with camera because he's he's blind and I feel like it's not ethical to be in the room so I said to him, listen, I will film you, but from the, uh, from, from outside, through the window. And I put microphone inside room, and, but I, I didn't know what's going on. So it was 35 millimeter camera and only one take, only one shot. So I was staying, I was inside, outside, and I saw him sitting like this, alone. Then someone came, they were out. Someone came saying hello, happy birthday, ta ta ta, and I feel no, no, no. Maybe something happened. Maybe something else will happen. Something else. Will happen. Then suddenly, a woman came, and she gave him a tea. I don't know how I felt. I, 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 I start filming. It was nothing special. She just gave him a cup of tea, and he took a cup of tea, and she wanted to leave room, and he stopped her. He stopped her. So and. And he obviously, I don't know what happened because microphone is there, but I cannot leave. I just see he's talking something. And then suddenly, pump, my stock, my film stock gone. Then I have, I have to take train to St. Petersburg. I have to develop material. <coughs> One week after, I put it on the table. And it was, imagine you are 24. You are making your first film. And you are making your first shot in your life. <coughs> and then suddenly, the guy stopping goal and saying, you know what, I will die soon, and this is my last chance, I never tell you. This is my last chance to tell you that I love you. Just, just here, just, just for me. Even like, from this moment, you cannot do bullshit anymore. You know, you change your life completely, right? <laughs> So if in the first shot of your life, you do such, and it was like best, best, uh, best possible way to say love you cannot read better in, in any book like really from this moment all my life changed because after such gift and then happens that I know I can talk on this the other two guys will drink uh, <laughs> get to sleep <laughs> but that's really high expectations and you start in, when you start yeah you cannot make that short yeah. it's quite a tough kind of line ahead it's also now because that was with 35 millimeter film, which is film is heavy, expensive, big. Now people could point the camera at someone, press the button, and let an hour or two go by. You know, mm -hmm. So different someone kind of may luck. not say I love you. Then. Right. <laughs> could you talk about the situation of, of, of actually getting people to talk to camera about such intimate matters as a family's past? Well, um, it's interesting. This film I'm showing this evening, first cousin once removed, is now the third portrait I've made. I didn't realize until it was finished that it was, a, I'm not trying to make portraits just happen the way, you know, I made a film about my grandfather, my father, and now my cousin, and I do not have a checklist, by the way, you know, of, um, so I don't know where I'm going next. But, um, you know, somehow, uh, in a way that I never planned, and I really never intended, um, I use my life as a laboratory. I use the lives and the stories of the people that I know and love, um, to try to find and try to explore and express bigger, broader truths about what it means to be human, 
what it means to be in this intense, powerful system we call family. I'm not trying to be funny, per se. I mean, but obviously there are many dimensions of life that are funny. What I'm trying to do, and sometimes you can't even try too hard, is I'm trying to recognize what's already there and allow the ironies of relationships and allow the ironies of um, the way we um, both affect one another in life from death and teach one another things about, again, the fragility of being human in every uh, film I've ever made. I, I often uh, think that I don't want people to smile or laugh on their faces necessarily while they're watching my film, although hopefully from time to time there are things to smile and laugh about. I'm more interested in, in a quality of experience for each viewer in which there is a smile in the back of one's mind, that the mind is smiling. Because when the mind is smiling, then there's receptivity to irony, to human frailty, to how strange it is to be human, what happens, what have you. So that's the kind of way that I approach each subject. And um, I mean, each story is different because, I mean, another thing about the work that I make, each film I like to think is almost like a Trojan horse. There's a way of describing the film. It's a film about his maternal grandfather. It's, yes, then the next port, he's made a film about his father. And this one's a film about his cousin who has Alzheimer's. But obviously, I'm, much, I'm after much bigger and broader. Well, inside the Trojan horse, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, 10,000 other things in each of those films. But the film has to be described a certain way, you know. That's why it's hard to even, you know, we talked about earlier, I was talking about writing treatments and grant proposals. You know, I can say it's a film about my grandfather, it's a film about my father, it's a film about my cousin, but it's hard to write in the full, to the fullest extent all the myriad dimensions of other things that I'm interested in, identity, family relationships, you know, personal history, love, aging, mortality, life, death, all that rich cauldron of stuff that I'm you know, that I'm, I'm trying to hold on to. It's too hot, really, you know, uh, in each, each time out, but um, it's hard to express that because actually you know, each film is just, as I said, I, bless you, I set a ball in motion with each film, and I never really know where it's going to go. Are there points, thinking um, about the new film, um, First Cousin, Once Removed, where you wonder if you're stepping a mark too far, and perhaps you can bring Noe in here as well, because she was involved in the production of I Am Breathing, which is about a man who, um, after a year of filming, died of motor neuron disease. Where, did you... Did you feel that this is a story about a man with Alzheimer's? Should I be doing this? Um, if we had seen the film, I would give you okay. a different answer than I would just in general. But um, I'll just give you the personal answer. Uh, well, I, I can, there are a lot of different answers. But the main answer <coughs> is, no, I never thought of, I never hesitated twice. I think it's an interesting issue, but I never experienced it as a conflict because simply put, that's what I do. I am now in a life of trying to explore, deeply explore, what it means to be human and this nexus of family relationships. This is a man, a cousin, a friend, a former mentor who I was very, very close to and um, who was also a poet with a capital P who knew what it meant to be a poet. And the idea that, that he would have trusted me as his cousin, friend, and, and former, I want to say student, but I mean, we loved each other. And so the idea that I would um, be exploring his life up to the very end and allowing people to think 
to, to think about memory and identity and life and death and aging mortality and all the th and love and family relationships and all those uh, that other cauldron I alluded to just a few moments ago in a new way, in a in a way that's very raw, if you will. But I mean, that's those are the risks that I take as an artist that I've been working towards my whole life. And he's a poet again with a capital P who knew that who knows who knew that the lives of artists are are the lives of poets especially are there to teach us about making the invisible visible and what what you know the truth behind the dark the, the truth about life and and to shine light on the dark spaces of human frailty so that that's simply put i'm supposed to take those risks my whole life has led up to that and i did did so proudly but i think it's back to what you're saying Alan. it's about making the invisible visible and that uh, uh, translation is what makes kind of every film unique uh, and every filmmaker unique because that translation is going to be different from anyone. Yeah. So uh, this this is kind of tough conversation because, in fact, uh, as as film in itself is very easy now, like everyone can make. Um, it's still question. If you have a pen, you are still not Dostoevsky, right? Even everyone has a pen, it doesn't mm. mean you are Dostoevsky. And and if you have a camera, it still doesn't mean you can go inside life of others so far. If you if you are not given same level of, I that's why I suggest we if you go to such sub tough subject, we have to work hard to be equal to situation. It could be funny uh, explanation to this, and uh, could be difficult. For example, uh, once I was making film about people who were born with the same thing as me, and one guy called me saying that he he gonna kill himself, and I did not take camera with me, of course. I just it was night, it was three o'clock in the night, it was winter February, and my car did not start. I I just ran to his place. It was like. 10 kilometers run and we dream three <coughs> days in a row without opening door and he's still alive but but another girl made suicide and her mother called me saying oh she made suicide you're making film about her you know she made suicide and she's in the hospital and I I, I took cameras and I took cameras me and I came to the hospital and I filmed moment when she woke up after but then my mother died during filming and it happened accidental in a way that we were passing my mom every day after filming we all team were drinking tea with her like because she's funny she's in this funny and everybody enjoy so we are every night were passing through her house drink tea in the night and talk and this night she did not she said okay you guys drink tea and I will not I'm kind of don't feel good. We were sitting, talking, la 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 la. Then we, uh, we decided to leave, and I said bye, and I realized she's dead. She's dead. And then, then my assistant said, okay, this is your, this is film. You are going inside the life of others. You have to film it. And my assistant took camera and filmed me closing eyes of my mom. And then it was huge discussion that Kasakovsky is absolutely unmoral person. He filmed death of his mom. It sounds like I was waiting 
You know, it's every time. Uh, once I made a film in Israel about my teacher, who actually was almost in such conditions, almost dead. And I've, I didn't want to film him. Because, but then his wife called me saying, why don't you come to us? We didn't see you five times, five years. Just come, Pavel want to say bye to you. And I said, okay, I will buy a ticket. I bought a ticket for tomorrow. I called them, I bought, I bought a ticket. She said, why don't you take camera with you? I was kind of confused to take camera. And okay, I called to my friends. I called to studio. I took Ariflex 35 millimeter. And I called to people who has film stuff. And I, I found nine rolls. And I flew to Israel, to Jerusalem. I came to the room and I made one shot. And I realized I cannot do more. I stopped and I four days I did not do anything. My trip was five days. Four days I did not do anything because it was obviously tough. In the fifth day he was getting feeling better. And he said, listen, I tell you, do you remember? I was his assistant. And he told me, do you remember we were filming people who is test drivers? And like they, they have a risk job, like they have to test new cars. And they push uh, driving on the hell. And they, they have special place to drive car in horrible condition. And it was a film about such people who, to, who, who test first airplanes, new airplanes. And the, the car driver said, best position for camera would be here. I will drive like this and it will be wonderful. So we put camera, we start filming, this guy driving. Suddenly on the corner, car like flip a few times. Like we came to him. We opened his door, he, he was alive. First he said, did you film it? <laughs> <laughs> and we say, no, 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 we came to help you. And he said, <laughs> and he said something I cannot pronounce. <laughs> like, this is your job to do this. Then, uh, then I start filming this guy. Then I start filming, the, and then he said, film, this is your job, film. And I start filming him. I was I start filming him. I was sure when I was in airplane, I was sure I have 90 minutes film, everything one to one. In my life it was two experience when I made film one to one. Like you I had sixty meter material of my first film and I make sixty minutes film. I was sure I'm, I have ninety minutes film with me. I came home, I put it in the laboratory to develop. Sixty percent of this was broken in laboratory. I got only thirty minutes. I made film 30 minutes and I show it. And some people in Amsterdam raising hands and they said, is it not unethical to film person in such condition? Especially it was moment. Uh, he's sitting in a wheelchair and someone helping him to, to move, uh, his wife, right? And she's, because and, and in Jerusalem this landscape like this. So for her it's difficult to move him. So when she goes up, she does like this, like this. That this is kind of a little bit easier. And I was filming this. And then suddenly in Amsterdam, someone said, this is not ethical to film this. Instead of filming this half shoe, why don't you help her to move him? And I said, listen, there are $500. This is buy chicken, fly there, I give you address. You can help her every day. <laughs> <laughs> this is our job, unfortunately. Unfortunately, our job to do filming. I want to tell a story before we leave, because I've been dying to tell this. I, I, want, I don't know if this is the right moment, but 
more like an ending story. I'll try to make it quick, but this is a true story in Edinburgh. The, you, you began with a film, you asked a question about a film I made called The Family Album. Yep. And um, this was the second film festival, Edinburgh in 1987. I came and I showed The Family Album here. And um, I had been to one other film festival, which really doesn't count because I'd only gone there for two days in Munich, Germany, and I showed my film and I, I don't even remember anything about it. But this was the first film festival I came. I was here for five days. And you know, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to him. So it, this were the days, those of you familiar with the film house across the street, there used to be a pub in the back. Does anyone remember this? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's not there anymore. I almost can't believe it. But there used to be a pub <laughs> in the back. When you walk into the left in the back, it wasn't a big room, but there was a, a bar. And so it was the first time I went to a film festival, and I didn't know anybody. But of course, everyone's speaking English, so I kind of was comfortable, but I didn't know any, I didn't even know how to make friends yet at a festival. <laughs> it was my first time. And basically what I did is I sat, I stood rather, sipping a pint um, every day, um, throughout the day, and I sat near the bulletin board where people would leave messages for one another. And because I didn't have any friends, or didn't know anyone, I just looked at the bulletin board, and I basically memorized it, you know. I knew every, who has, who's not here yet, who just arrived, and, okay. And finally, um, again, I, I was the loneliest person in Edinburgh, I have to just say. So finally it's time for my um, press screening. And I go to the press screening, it's a really dark room, and there were like 20 or 25 people there. And I had the press screening, maybe there were one or two questions. And I was gonna go back to my spot in the pub. And on my way out of the room, who comes up to me out of the blue? This is. I guess this is really a, a, a story, an inspirational story for young filmmakers here. Um, who comes up to me but a man who, uh, Roger Ebert, who the, the late film critic who just passed away recently, out of the blue, out of the darkness, suddenly Roger Ebert comes up to me. He was in the room, in the back of the room, I didn't even know or see, and he says, Alan, I really, really liked your film. Um, you know, here's my card. We want to review this on a television program. In the United States, what? I mean, it's, oh, sure, sure. And um, okay, and so I, um, and then I went to get something to eat, and I went back to the pub, and I'm thinking, like everyone's doing business and talking and knowing each other, and, and like no one would, I can't even tell anyone what just happened to me, you know? <laughs> everyone in the room would love, all the filmmakers would love for what, you know, and I couldn't tell anyone, and then, so I'm back to my, that's why I mentioned, I'm back to my bulletin board, you know, where all the messages are. And like, I'm not kidding. I look, and there's a message from me. <laughs> and, like, and who is it from? Roger Ebert. <laughs> I still have it, of course, because right? I do have a lot of things, as Victor mentioned in my studio. And he says, Alan, just say, I loved your film and reminder. Here's the address to send the, the film to, and here's the film. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, and this could be looked up, in the night in Roger Ebert's syndicated column about the Edinburgh Film Festival, which it just so happened that someone here is a better historian than I. For some reason, Roger Ebert really loved the Edinburgh Film Festival and he used to come here all the time. But that year, 1987, he wrote about two films. I Know Why the Mermaid Sings, it's a feature dramatic fiction film, and my film. And I never was able to tell it to anyone in Edinburgh in 1987. <laughs> 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 I've told the film, uh, the story rather, you know, 10, 15, 20 times in my life in all the years that have ensued. And 
Finally. <laughs> I told him, wait that. 20 more years. It yeah. will be more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was take one. I'll tell it in 20 years, take two. <laughs> Actually, one of the questions I was going to ask at the end, but it seems a right time to say this now, about the impact of film. This is your the personal impact of your own film and the experience of, uh, of meeting someone through that. But I'm curious about the idea of both your films as intervention about the idea that they could change people or change someone. I know you've mentioned in the past about the impact that nobody, nobody's business had on your father directly of, yeah. of changing the way that he was perceived yeah. and interacted with people. And I'm just curious about both your bodies of work as a whole of how you feel about them and what experiences you may have had with individuals who've seen them. Um, there are, again, there are a lot of different ways I can answer that question. I suppose the simplest way is that's a screen behind us, right? Yeah. I, when I'm working on my films, I see the screen, the surface of the screen, in a different in different ways. In the foregr foregrounded, I see the screen. I want the audience, the viewers, each <coughs> of you, to see the screen, to see my film on the screen, as a window. Now, in, in many ways, you could say every film that's shown on a screen in any venue, in any theater, is a window. And when I say window, I mean in the very general sense that it's a window to the lives of others, to the cultures of others, to the languages of others, to the stories of others. And this, whether it's animation, fiction, dramatic, what have you, but it's something that we look through in which we learn. We're fascinated, we're entertained, whatever. You know, I mean, and I mean the, the full panoply of possible responses to looking through, which is the gift of cinema to the world, to the world, ideas, people, characters, whatever. But for me, my, my work also has to flip, and that screen has to also turn into a mirror. And when, the f when that window turns in a, into a mirror, and there's no moment when it happens, and it's not either or, because often the best, the most powerful, is when it's both simultaneously. But the window dimension to my work is when I somehow activate you as viewer, in which you either see some aspect, dimension of yourselves, your family members, your, your, your relationships to other people in your own family systems, or you know, you're sitting in the room and I make you think about what it is to remember or to forget or to place yourself as you're sitting there right now in real time watching my film and think about your own lives you know, and how the, the issues that my film is stirring cause you to question something about your lives? Um, if you want to watch Alan's earlier films, you can actually get a box set of all his feature documentaries, which includes some of the shorts which are available from alanberliner.com. I <laughs> cannot tell you how utterly brilliant and mesmerizing these films are. Likewise, Victor's films, I found that almost all of them are available through Mubi.com. No! I think you do get a percentage, <laughs> don't worry. I think whoever it's legit. It's completely above board. Don't worry, you'll just. You Russian may not be getting the money. Russian corruption. Yeah. yeah, there may be someone else getting the money, but someone's getting the money from them. Honestly. Trust me, I'll show you the website later. But can you please join, join me in thanking Victor, Alan, and Noe? Thanks very much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed uh, that, we've also got individual masterclasses from both Alan Berliner and Victor Kozakowski.
that took place last year, which we'll be releasing online in due course. So keep an eye out for that. We've also got Masterclass with Mark Cousins and Nick Broomfield on the way. So um, plenty to plenty to look forward to. If you'd like to take a look back at any of the uh, sections covered in this podcast, the videos of the conversation between Victor and Alan are available on the Scottish Documentary Institute's website, www.scottdoc.com. You'll see them under the Masterclasses tab. Alternatively, you can go straight to our Vimeo page or YouTube and search from there. Anyway, take care. Thanks for listening. Uh, subscribe to our SoundCloud or find us on iTunes to keep up to date with the next episodes. Uh, and uh, yeah, until next week, take it easy. Mm-hmm.